I, I want to begin this morning with a lunchbox, this pink lunchbox. It belongs to a particular seven-year-old girl that I know, and she's a very picky eater. And I have compassion for picky eaters because I was also a picky eater. But I tell you what, when you take a picky eater who loves to chat and you send them into a school lunchroom, the results can be disastrous. This lunchbox often returns to my house in the afternoon and I open it and look in it and the lunch I packed has hardly been touched. I've tried peanut butter and jelly. I've tried chicken nuggets. I've tried leftover pizza. And I've stooped to parenting lows I never thought I would stoop to. I've even said to the owner of this lunchbox, how about tomorrow if I just don't put any lunch in your lunchbox? And she looked at me and said, Mommy, without my lunchbox, I'd starve. (laughs) And I said, you're telling me it's just the lunchbox and not the lunch that's in it that you need? And she thought for a minute. And then she said, oh. (laughs) Oh. Nothing she could say but oh. We get to return to the Gospel of Mark this weekend where our theme is live it. We're one month in and I want to remind you what we learned on week one and that was that the Gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ intended to change the way we live. If we are simply people who carry lunchboxes but never eat the lunch, that's like hearing the Gospel but not living it. All of the things we've been learning, things we've learned just in these recent weeks, don't just say you believe, but repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. Don't become like an accidental Pharisee living by a set of man-made rules, but truly engage with Jesus. All these and more, week after week after week, we're learning about this good news of Jesus, and we're being challenged to live it. This weekend, we pick up where Steve left off last week in Mark chapter 3. So I invite you to join me there if you'd like to. Mark chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed Jesus. After the interactions that Jesus has had with the Pharisees, after healing some people, after dealing with some evil spirits, after all that, we pick up with the story and Jesus goes up onto the mountain. Maybe there were as many as several hundred followers at this point, but he called 12 of them 
for special assignment. They were the ones who would go with him. He personally chose them. The routine of that day was that if you saw a rabbi you wanted to study more closely with, you would approach that rabbi and ask for permission to be his disciple. But Jesus did it differently. Jesus took initiative and issued personal invitation. And they were a varied group. There were fishermen in the group. There was a tax collector who worked for the occupying Roman forces. They were white collar and blue collar. Further study helps us understand that some of them were rather outspoken, even impetuous, and some a bit more quiet. Some were likely wealthy and some most likely not. There just wasn't a cookie cutter mold for a disciple of Christ. Even today when Jesus invites people to himself, we see that like our roses and our ribbons represent, it's a wide variety of ages and races and personality types of people. The first thing Mark tells us after these guys joined Jesus is that they were to accompany him. They needed to stay close enough to Jesus that he could teach them. They would go where he went, they would see what he saw, and they would hear what he heard. And what they would experience with Jesus would take place in real time, just one day at a time. You and I have the ability to cheat on their story and flip through the pages. And when we do that, we see that they accompanied Jesus to many places. Stormy seas, exorcisms, times when they'd realized his family members didn't understand what he was doing. More than once, they'd see Jesus feed thousands of hungry people in miraculous ways. They'd see that the message he was bringing was contrary to the culture of his day. They'd watch as Jesus embraced children that they would have just not bothered with. And they'd see that he could walk on water. They'd get to know him very well by accompanying him. From this point forward, their lives would be inextricably linked with Jesus. First, they said yes to him. And then they began to learn what they'd gotten themselves into. Mark tells us that Jesus would send them out to preach. Maybe it would be from a platform, maybe across the dinner table, maybe over the back fence in the yard, or maybe out in the marketplace. But as they accompanied Jesus, they'd wind up positioned in the right place at the right time, and they'd be given opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel. And then verse 15 tells us that Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. That's when my hand would have gone up. Uh, Jesus, excuse me. Yes, I'll accompany you. Yes, I'll even preach. But this whole demon thing, wait a minute. Can't you just cast them out for me? Jesus didn't remove all the demons, but he did give the apostles authority over the demons, his authority. Evidently, this would not be the easiest path they'd ever traveled. 
So here they are going around the countryside. It's not just campfires and roasted marshmallows at all, but it's the kingdom of God come to earth. And saying yes to accompanying Jesus is going to call out of these guys stuff they've never had called out of themselves before. When I turned 40 years old, and I'm not going to say exactly when that was, it's not important to the story, but my husband and I went on a vacation where the ocean was warm enough to actually get in. And we enjoyed lots of snorkeling that week. And from the first day we were there, I determined that Nick would be my protector. We were out snorkeling and I ran into this big sea turtle and I reached over, grabbed my husband by the waistband of his swimming trunks and thrust him between me and that big elderly tortoise. Day after day we did this and it worked. Nick protected me and I never got bit by a turtle. Well, on the last day, the last day of our vacation, we joined with this group and got on a sailboat and we were taken out to this really neat snorkeling place. And we were having a wonderful time until just below Nick and me in the water, a shark swam by. To this very day, there's conflict between my husband and me about the size of that shark. (laughs) Nick says it was about three or four feet long, and I remember it much more close to the size of a standard school bus. (laughs) The minute I saw that shark, I took off and swam, went up the ladder, onto the deck of that boat, threw the flippers and the mask, because I was done. Well, the guy running the boat came over And he thought I was sick and he asked what was wrong. And I explained to him what I knew would be news to him. And I said, there's a shark, so obviously I'm never getting in that ocean again. And the guy looked at me and he said, don't you know that shark has always been there? Don't you know that when you get in the ocean, you're entering his domain?" Well, right about then, my husband paddled up and called up to me, Hey, darling, this is your birthday gift. Please, I won't let that shark hurt you. And as I went over to the edge and made my decision to get back into the water, only one thing would be different. And it would be that now I knew the shark was there. Jesus didn't invite his followers into a heated pool at a resort. He invited them into shark-infested waters because the very people he came to save are swimming there. This weekend, we won't see the disciples preach any sermons. We won't see them cast out any demons. But what we'll see is that as they accompany Jesus, they'll experience the things he wants them to experience. They'll learn the things he wants them to learn. And we can bank on the fact that it'll be preparatory for what they'll need down the road when he does send them out. Because every place Jesus ever takes a person has meaning and purpose. So the stage is set They're swimming in the shark-infested waters. And we come to verse 20, which begins one time. 
We don't know if they've been with Jesus a day or a week or a month. Mark just begins in verse 20. One time, Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. So they've gone into this house and Mark tells us it's really crowded. The crowds are swarming. We don't know if they were there because they were curious Or if they had come in search of the healing they'd been hearing about. Maybe some of them even believed he was God. Whatever the case, it's very crowded and Jesus and the disciples don't even have time for food. And his family comes and they think he's a little crazy. Well, think with me for a minute what it would have been like for the family members of Jesus. Maybe they're a bit hurt ever since he took up this new ministry He's not been around as much. He's even missing some family occasions here and there. They knew him when, and it's awkward that people think he's God. Maybe that's how they felt. Or maybe they cared so deeply and they were incensed by the criticism people were railing against Jesus. Or maybe Mary was like me and she couldn't stand it when her kid wasn't eating and she wanted to grab him, take him home and shovel it in to be sure he'd be healthy. We don't get to see this episode play out to its conclusion because at the same time, the teachers of the law show up and they're saying that Jesus is possessed by Satan and that he gets his power from Satan doesn't seem that Jesus gets angry or upset, but he just says to those teachers, come here. How can Satan cast out Satan? And he gives user-friendly analogies. A kingdom that's divided won't last. And a feuding family will fall apart. If it's true that Satan is fighting against himself, then that kingdom of Satan will end shortly. And then Jesus gives a more fully developed illustration about himself. Look with me at verse 27. This is Jesus talking. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. They'd heard and maybe they'd seen Jesus casting out demons. And now by his own testimony, he's claiming to be the stronger man. I can come in and 
tie Satan up, he describes. Let it be known Jesus is not possessed by Satan. And Satan isn't this equal but opposite force to Jesus. This isn't the case of a good dog and a bad dog barking at each other. No, Jesus has absolute and complete authority. It's so easy for us to envision that it's a competition between Jesus and Satan and we don't yet know who's going to win. But that's not true. From before time began, Jesus has always been God. He's always possessed complete, full power. He didn't grow into his position of being God like a little leaguer who grows up to play high school ball and then makes it to the Kaiser Volcanoes and then maybe, just maybe, someday gets to play in the big leagues. No, Jesus has always been the stronger one. This is who he is. There's Jesus and there's everybody and everything else, period. In a class by himself, Jesus explains to those who are accusing him, I'm the stronger man, I can walk into Satan's house, I can tie him up and I can plunder it. And when you plunder Satan's house, you set free anyone he's held captive there. Get this Right at that point, those who'd been hopeless realize they can hope again if they place their faith in Jesus. Maybe the disciples think right now would be the perfect time for a break so they could run out with Jesus, process a lot of this, but that doesn't happen because Jesus continues talking to the accusing teachers. Verse 28 I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he's no longer reasoning, he's no longer metaphorically illustrating anything. He's stating the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All sin can be forgiven, and those who go to Jesus for that forgiveness have absolutely nothing to worry about. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. This is a very perplexing passage. This unforgivable sin isn't when you sin and then you later realize and you repent and you ask God to forgive you. If you're sad about your sin, you didn't commit this one. You know you need to be forgiven and you go to the one who's able to forgive. If you find yourself sitting there hoping you never commit this one, you won't because you've positioned yourself humbly before God. This sin is the persistent slander against the Holy Spirit of God. The one who commits this sin cuts off all connection to the only one who could forgive and save. When a person refuses the loving pursuit of God... And the way God attempts to reach them with the truth, they wind up living and dying in the lie. 
One way it might be described is to say the person is sitting on a, on a branch and they saw it off. And when the branch falls, they fall too. The Holy Spirit's job is to point to all truth. To continually refuse him when he attempts to reach you is to refuse to ever be led to Jesus. One author of a New Testament reference book put it this way. This is the sin of the willfully blind who persistently refuse the illumination of the spirit, oppose the spirit's work, and justify themselves in doing so by deliberately misrepresenting him. For such there can be no forgiveness, for they have refused the only way of forgiveness that God has provided. Indeed, they have slammed the door. And another one wrote, It is a person's preference for darkness, even though they've been exposed to the light. Jesus didn't come right out and tell the teachers, you're committing this unforgivable sin. But he did give them a stern warning that they were skating on thin ice when they said he was possessed by Satan and getting his power from Satan. You and I can be simply confident in God's work through his Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. When we respond to his truth, it shows that we're accompanying Jesus. The disciples are watching this whole interchange between Jesus and these accusing teachers. And they see that Jesus unravels lies and he lights the path for any who would accompany him. You and I are shrewd to be aware of Satan, to know that the shark is there. But we are downright wise when we gaze unceasingly at the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the victory is already ours through him, through him alone. When I was a little girl, just learning to read, I got a hold of the newspaper and read this article about a crime against a mom and a kid not far from where we lived. And it rocked my world. I was scared to death. In my young mind, I reached the conclusion that it had happened to them because the dad wasn't with them. And so I became a shadow to my dad. If he left home to go run errands, I went with him. If he stayed home while my mom went to run errands, I stayed home with my dad. Well, one Easter weekend came and my dad and brother went away for a fishing trip and I was left home with my mom and sisters. I was fearful the whole time. I didn't enjoy my Easter basket. I didn't enjoy the girl time we were supposed to be having. I just agonized over the fact that my dad wasn't with me. I desperately waited for him to return. And when he did, deep in my heart, I knew I was safe because he was bigger and badder than anybody. And he could beat up anybody who ever would try to hurt me. Friends, this is the truth of God. The stronger one has already come and he's tied up the enemy and came so that he could set us free.
We entered the house with these guys way back in verse 20 and we were seeing what was going on with Jesus' family and then he gave his attention to the accusing teachers and now he's settled that one. So Mark takes us back to the family. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Nothing Jesus says is to suggest a minimization of earthly family or any responsibilities we have there. He's not downplaying that. In fact, we know that one of the last things he did on earth was to provide for the care of his mother. When he was hanging on the cross, he asked the disciple John to look after her. It's not that he's rejecting family relationships But he's highlighting something different. And that's a person's personal relationship to him. And he says, if you do my father's will, I claim you as my family member. And it's amazingly freeing when we realize that in this instance, the people that Jesus says are doing his father's will, they weren't preaching. They weren't casting out demons or feeding thousands of people. Verse 32 says, they were sitting around with Jesus. They had accompanied Jesus, and in so doing, they were at the right place at the right time, and they were in the center of God's will for them. And he was pleased to call them family. Back in September one night, I was out and I was walking through a parking lot and it was raining and this car pulled up and started motioning to me and I thought they were being nice to let me go ahead because I didn't have an umbrella or anything. And, but as I was walking in front of them, the woman kept pointing and making all these motions and I just didn't know what she was doing. So when I got around in front of her, the window came down and she yelled, hey, aren't you Daniel and Joshua's mom? Well, of course, I was delighted to be known, connected to my boys, and I went over, and she's a woman who works at the school where they had started kindergarten. Do you realize that's how Jesus feels about you when you do his Father's will? That delight, of course, he would want to claim you. Perhaps you're here and you're the only one in your earthly family so far who's walking with God. Maybe you're the only one who's placed your faith in Jesus. It seems there is a special entree for you. That Jesus has broadened the branches on his family tree so that you can know where you belong eternally as a member of his family. Because Jesus says, whoever does his father's will is his brother and sister and mother. Imagine 
in heaven when he takes you around introducing you to other people that way. Jesus invited them to come with him and the first thing Mark tells us after that is that they were to accompany Jesus. And when you and I accompany Jesus, we'll wind up right where we need to be. And we won't be caught carrying around a lunchbox that we never open up and eat. But we'll be caught living the gospel. As we close this morning, I want to pose a few questions and maybe they will help us grab onto this and take it with us so it doesn't get left here when the lights are turned out. Question number one, where does Jesus want you to accompany him this week? Maybe it's to a hard place. Maybe it's to the same old boring place he wanted you to accompany him last week. I don't know where all of you've come from. I don't know where he's calling you, but you and he know. Where is it? Second question, what would it look like for you to truly live in the reality of Jesus as the stronger one? As you accompany him, what difference would it make that there's no enemy, no accuser that can compete with Jesus, the one you're so close to? And the third one, if doing God's will places you in the family of Jesus, how does that change your perspective on obedience? 